I don't think in any of our modules anyone shows up and you know lectures for 70 minutes about what Facebook ought to do about regulating false political speech, say. Rather, we show up and say, look, here are some difficult ethical questions that you would confront if you, say, were charged with regulating false political speech on a, on a social media platform. Here's some tools for philosophy in thinking about the value of unrestricted speech. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We'd love to hear from you. Today's guest is Jeff Behrens. Director of Ethics and Technology Initiatives at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. He's also a co-director of Embedded Ethics, a program which teaches ethical reasoning to budding computer scientists. In this episode, we cover what is ethics and why it matters, how it differs from morality, making ethics cool, and teaching it to students at Harvard via the Embedded Ethics program. The way we'd like to start with the genesis and the evolution. So we'd be really curious to hear about where you grew up and your evolution to date. How'd you end up where you are right now? I grew up in a suburb of Cincinnati, and in a lot of ways that was a sort of stereotypical suburb experience. You know, I was playing baseball and uh, having backyard barbecues and things of that sort. And I sort of think that the, the start of my sort of journey toward philosophy anyway started in high school. So I have an older sister, and um, she was a senior in high school when I was a freshman. And sort of out of nowhere, as I, as I remember it, she gave me this book one day and said, I've been taking this class. Uh, you know, we were working through this book and, and I think you might like it. It was a, a sort of short history of the, uh, of Western philosophy. Uh, I was, you know, 14 or whatever and hadn't had any exposure to this, but, um, you know, I was like pretty dorky and, uh, and enjoyed reading. Um, which I also have my sister to, to thank for. I started working through it and was kind of like really bowled over by the magnitude of, of some of the ideas canvassed in this book. Um, you know, so this is like my first introduction to Aristotle and, and Hume, Kant, these, these towering figures. And it really kind of sucked me in. And so I, you know, I was reading a little bit on my own throughout high school and I had an opportunity to take some classes that more, more directly engaged with philosophy. So by the time I got to, to college, I was pretty sure that I wanted philosophy to be part of my, my experience um, somehow. I didn't know exactly how it would fit in because I had you know, other interests. And I ended up double majoring in philosophy and English and minored in theater. I sometimes joke with my students that I, I, knew, I knew I wanted to be impoverished after graduation, but I, I wasn't sure how. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I had a, a fantastic experience. This was at Loyola University Chicago. 
which has this large eclectic philosophy department. And from there, I, I attended the University of Wisconsin in, in Madison to, to pursue my PhD. The next stepping stone was my, my first job at Illinois State University, where I worked for a few years. Um, I'm married to a, to an academic philosopher too. And we had an opportunity to come to Harvard in 2016. And we've been here since. It wasn't really until I got to Harvard that I started thinking about the applied issues in, in digital technology that I'm thinking about now. So I sort of fell into that sideways after arriving here. What was the name of the book? It's called The Passion of the Western Mind. And it's funny, I, I, I bet I still have my tattered copy uh, sitting somewhere on a bookshelf, but I haven't really gone back and thought about that book in a long time, despite it its central role that it played. I can imagine now that, I mean, there are friends that I have from high school that I'm still in touch with. And if they're going to listen to this, they're going to, they're going to laugh at these moments because I carried it around with me and I got in trouble in chemistry one day because I was reading, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, about Kant instead of whatever important chemical reactions I was supposed to be supposed to be learning about that day. So it could, I guess, uh, if philosophy is supposed to corrupt people, uh, it, it was doing a good job. And how about your interests, sort of the intellectual interest in uh, the intersection of ethics and technology? How did that emerge and take root beyond your exposure to Harvard as an institution? Yeah. So, yeah, as I said, it, was, um, it wasn't really on my radar until I was here. A lot of my work in grad school is in an area of ethics that's called meta-ethics. And this is sort of the study of the nature of ethics or the nature of morality. So instead of asking directly ethical questions like, what should I do? Or, you know, is this thing good or bad? It asks questions like, well, what would it mean for something to be morally good or bad in the first place? What are we talking about when, when we talk about morality, when we talk about ethics? And if there are truths in morality or ethics, what are they like? Uh, how do they come to be true? And how do we come to know that? So that's pretty far removed um, from thinking about on the ground issues like, how we ought to, you know, design autonomous vehicles. So the way that I got into this area was through teaching. I think in the in the summer between my first and second year here, a couple of my senior colleagues in the philosophy department approached me and said, you know, we've been in contact with this with this instructor in computer science. Uh, she's been working up this course on the ethics of artificial intelligence, and she's she would like to pull in a philosopher, an ethicist, to help to help her instruct. Uh, you know, do you have any interest? This is no secret that I'm telling you. She, she knows all this by now, but I was pretty resistant at first or not resistant exactly, but hesitant in large part because I found it kind of intimidating. I don't have, you know, an academic background in computer science. I was doing some C coding, uh, in high school, you know, for a, for a semester, but I think that that had been my last exposure to anything really resembling computer science. And then as I was just saying, a lot of my work wasn't really applied anyway. So, you know, forget the specifics of computer science. I sort of had my head in the clouds and was thinking about quite abstract areas in ethics and not uh, on, the, on the ground issues. So I found it kind of intimidating, um, you know, to walk into another discipline and, and try to be a meaningful part of the conversation. You know, I sort of took the next step of thinking about it and the next step. And then I eventually met this person. It was It's Barbara Gross, a towering figure in uh, natural language processing in particular. And so we eventually sat down and I think it probably took 15 or 20 minutes for me to be convinced that 
you know, not only would I have something to contribute here, but, but across the table from me was a partner who really understood what it would mean to, to work with a philosopher and who really understood the kind of value that, that philosophical engagement could add. And so I, you know, I, I, I took a deep breath and I, and I dove in. Uh, and that was the game changing experience for me, working with, with Barbara and learning from the students and from our fantastic teaching assistant. It really opened my eyes to how interesting the, the fundamental questions in, in AI are and to how pressing the need is for close philosophical work on the ethical issues. So what did she tell you in those 15 minutes? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. What, yeah, what exactly was it? So one thing, and here, I offer this in a somewhat confessional tone too. Another, <laughs> another thing, another thing that I, that made me a little hesitant is that, you know, not everybody who's worked in the natural sciences, I think, really understands what, what philosophers do. And that's mostly our fault. Even if they do understand it, I think a lot of folks don't hold it in high esteem. The one thing I think that was, that was really exciting about that first conversation with Barbara is that she had had years of experience of working with philosophers, uh, in, especially in her early work on natural language processing. Um, so, you know, in that context, it was primarily, um, work in philosophy of language and then in philosophy of action, which is useful when you're thinking about kind of the internal architecture of digital or robotic agents, having a little bit of shared vocabulary, uh, a little bit of shared understanding of the methodology of philosophy uh, really went a long way. I guess one other thing that strikes me right now as I, as I look back and, and think about that conversation, and it was, I don't know if, it, I don't know if this is to put the point too strongly, but the degree of humility that she showed, you know, she'd been working on this class for a couple of years already. She had, she had already run it, but was, clearly willing to defer to, to my expertise in shaping the, the ethical material and the instructional methods as we saw fit. Maybe the way to summarize that is that I had the impression that there was an opportunity for a genuine collaboration rather than two people who happened to be teaching on alternating days or something, but where there's no real deep connection. And once I had the impression that it wouldn't be like that, it was easy to sign on. Taking a step deeper about ethics, how do you define ethics? What's the significance of ethics? I think of ethics as, as being a quite broad area of study. The primary question, as I see it, in ethics is a simple one, but a somewhat profound one, and it's, what should I do? It's a simple practical question, right? So it's not a question, it's not a theoretical question. It's not a question about gaining theoretical knowledge or, you know, sort of descriptive, a descriptive understanding of the way the world is. It's a, it's a normative question in the sense that it's about a should or an ought. And it's just, what should I do? A question that, that confronts us all the time, confronts us in simple and complex scenarios. And so I think of ethics as the area of study that informs the answer to that question. At least that's a good place to start. Um, and then I think there are sort of bits of ethical theorizing that don't neatly lend themselves as direct answers to that question, but are adjacent to that central question. 
everyone wants to know what they should do. <laughs> that practical question confronts us all the time. Of course, we're going to get competing answers to that question if we localize it to a specific case, and we're going to get crazy differences of opinion about how to theorize uh, more deeply or identify identify deeper principles that inform what to do on a particular occasion. But everyone is interested in that question. There's, I think there's no escaping the significance of ethics understood in this way, because it's just a question about how to get on with our lives. At the same time, I think it's just astonishing how tucked away ethics has been or how little it, it has actually been incorporated into the fabric of our societies and our, I guess, psyches. I think one of the things is just how do you make ethics cool? I mean, yeah, you're young and cool. I'm sure you have some <laughs> ideas around this, but I think this is one of the issues. You heard as it well. here first. I'm young and cool. It's not a cool topic, I think, for a lot of people, but it's, yeah. it's actually really cool. Like what, what should you do when you search for resources in particular on ethics versus morality or sort of contrast yeah. ethics versus morality online it's just baffling that it's it, a big mess i haven't really it, it's completely it's just so astonishing that there seems to be no clear answer so please could you help us let me take a couple steps back and and address one or two ideas in, in the way Sachin set, set things up too so first broadly i agree with the two of you that you know, if you take a bird's eye view and ask how deeply ingrained is ethical thinking in the way that, you know, it's practiced by people like me in academic philosophy, how deeply ingrained is that into broader society in places like the U.S. or let's just take the U.S. as an example. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the answer is it's not very deeply. Now, it, I think it's worth pointing out a couple of, of success areas. So, I think medical ethics, bioethics in general, has done a really nice job of establishing itself as a widely respected interdisciplinary enterprise that has real application, you know, real real efficacy in the world. It's not that this never happens, because we should take some, some confidence in that, but I think it's right that there's a kind of generalized lack of understanding about what people like me might have to offer to the public at large, say. So then there are these kind of outstanding questions still in the air here. Like, how do you, how do you fix that? How do you, how do you make, make ethics cool? And, and then there's this particular question about ethics, ethics and morality. So let me see. Um, let me take that last question and see if we can work our way up to the harder thing. I suspect part of the reason that, you know, your internet searches haven't yielded enlightenment on this is that there's genuine disagreement among philosophers about the best way to con conceive of these ideas. I'll tell you a little bit about how I think about it and a little bit about, you know, how, how some other folks think about things. As I said already, I like to think about the study of ethics in this sort of capacious way. When you're doing ethical theorizing, you're just doing anything that's going to help us inform the answer, what should I do? And understood in that way, that might include lots of things that people wouldn't ordinarily think of as being moral in nature. In answering the question, what should I do? It might be important for me to pay attention to my self-interest, for example. And a lot of people think, well, no, morality is not about self-interest. Morality is about being other regarding. It's about the interests of others. I think that as I think about it, and a fairly good company here, 
one way to understand what's going on is that if it makes sense to treat morality as as a sort of special domain, it's a subset, an important subset, most of us think, but a subset nonetheless of ethics. And so moral considerations are, are a subset of, of ethical considerations writ large. And then there's this further question, which is how to understand what that subset is. What makes something a moral consideration instead of not? And that itself is a pretty interesting puzzle, I think. I'll confess to not having very firm views on this, but I'll just mention a, a couple of ways of thinking about it and happy to think out loud more with you guys. So one way that, that people think about this is, is something that I alluded to just, just a moment ago, which is trying to identify a special kind of content that moral considerations have. That is, you might think that the, that the domain of the moral is about something in particular, and it could be about the way that we engage with other people. Morality is about what I'm allowed to do, you know, once I start butting up against Eric's life and Sasha's life and the, and the lives of people around me, what I'm permitted to do, maybe what I owe to them, things of that kind. Another way that, that people have tried to sort of get a foothold here is by thinking about um, what some philosophers call reactive attitudes. So these are attitudes or, or emotions that we take toward the behavior of others and, and sometimes to ourselves that are kind of like positively or negatively balanced. So for example, suppose I observe Sajin, you know, he secretly steals something from Eric. Eric has his back turned. Sajin takes his new microphone. And one way that I might, that I might react to that is by condemning Sajin in some way. So I might blame him. So he's done something deceitful and is that calls for a certain kind of emotional response from me. Or, you know, we might take it the other way. Sachin helps Eric out of a jam when he didn't, you know, at great cost to him. And now I hold Sachin in esteem. So his action is praiseworthy, as philosophers would like to call it. And so one way of thinking about the moral domain is that it's the domain in which those kinds of attitudes are implicated. So you've done something morally wrong when You've transgressed some ethical requirement. And on top of that, it would be fitting for me to blame you for having done so. And you can contrast that. Like, you know, earlier I, I said that we might want to contrast moral considerations with considerations of pure self-interest. Like if I'm in the grocery store and I choose incorrectly the breakfast cereal that will be best for me, no one thinks I should be blamed for that. It would be bizarre. If, you know, Sachin was watching me from down the aisle and he knew that I, you know, I chose the one brand, but it would have been better for me to choose the other. And he's not going to like shake his finger at me and say shame on me. And so one way of thinking about things is that's what sort of marks the difference. That it may, it may have been a failing, a kind of practical failing of my kind. I didn't do what I should have done, but it wasn't a moral failing um, because it doesn't make sense to, uh, to hold me in disregard. As a result. How do we think about segmenting ethics? When you study ethics, how would one study ethics? What are the different subdomains? I'll give you the sort of textbook answer as a start. The typical way that you would see this divided up in an intro text is that there are three main areas of 
study in ethics. And you can kind of think of them as lying on a spectrum from most applied, that is most directly concerned with the day-to-day decisions we make about what actions to take, to least applied, so getting increasingly abstract. So sort of paradigm paradigm questions in applied ethics are things like, is it morally permissible or you know, is it permissible to to euthanize this patient? Is it permissible to enact an affirmative action policy for admissions in state universities? Taking one step up the chain of abstraction is often in philosophy called normative ethics, although I think maybe most helpfully for, for people who are coming to this anew, just think of it as ethical theory. You can imagine, you know, suppose you do a bunch of applied ethics and you get convinced of a series of judgments. So you think, yeah, it's okay to euthanize patients of that kind. No, it's not okay to institute affirmative action policies of that kind. And you sort of go through a list of topics and reach some judgments. Well, presumably you should expect that there's some higher level principle, some theory that organizes and explains why the verdicts in applied ethics are the way that they are, right? It's not like just some giant hodgepodge. To use a little bit of philosophy speak, um, one of the main jobs of the ethical theorist is to try to, is to try to identify the necessary and sufficient conditions for permissibility or impermissibility. So we want to know exactly under what conditions would, would an action be morally permissible or impermissible and why. You know, what explains why, uh, say, euthanizing this patient is, is impermissible. Let me pause there to note that both of those areas of inquiry, applied ethics and, and ethical theory or, or normative ethics, are first order in the sense that their objects of inquiry are directly ethical, right? So the answers that you're going to get to the questions in these domains are themselves normative in, in the sense that I introduced earlier. But the third main area is is not like that. I said a little bit about this a, a few moments ago. This third area is called meta-ethics. And what's really distinctive about this area of inquiry is that it, it's not marked by a first-order investigation into the content of ethics. Rather, what we do is bring to bear philosophical questions from other domains and apply them to ethics itself. So we, so we want to ask, for example, how do we come to know? what the ethical truths are. This is a question in uh, what's called epistemology in philosophy, the study of knowledge and our justification for beliefs. For, you know, forget what the content of ethics is. How do we come to know ethical truths in the first place? That question presupposes that there are some ethical truths, and we could ask that question. We could ask, okay, well, are, are there any truths in ethics? And according to a lot of philosophers, the answer to that is no. It just doesn't make sense to treat ethics as an area of inquiry that's sort of on a par with, you know, say physics. We're doing something else when we engage in, in ethics, um, something that's unlike when we engage with questions in the sciences. So are you, are you saying that ethics predominantly is a non-binary exercise, more of a spectrum? Well, I mean to be saying that if you come across a philosopher and ask, what do you study? And they say ethics, you haven't yet learned very much about what they might be taking themselves to be doing. They might be doing one of these three things, or indeed some 
I think even some adjacent things that don't really fit nicely into these sort of typical um, textbook divisions. There may be definitions, but the application of those definitions goes much more beyond the scope of those definitions, where these questions may come up. And I think what I would be tempted to say about this is that we sort of have to have rough categories of this kind in order to get on with the business of introducing people to the interesting questions in ethics as it's studied philosophically. And if at the end of the day, in the process of our theorizing, in the process of our of our inquiry, we want to give up on one of these categories, or if we want to say, you know what, it doesn't really make sense to think about applied ethics as being really distinct from ethical theory at the end of the day, then fine. I think we should treat these categorizations as, as sort of helpful tools to get started, but in principle, they could themselves be up for investigation and, and up for revision. Maybe that's what makes it cool. Maybe that's what makes it cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm glad. Well, good. I'm glad that you reminded me of that. So I, I kind of think, I kind of think that what it takes to convince people that people like me and my colleagues in philosophy have something to offer to, to convince them that there's something cool here that they should engage with. In part, what it takes is convincing them that we know what we're doing, <laughs> that there's a kind of methodology that can help clarify these questions and, and can help people ar arrive at answers. I think that, and, and this is understandable to a certain degree, I think that there's a sort of perception of a lot of philosophy and ethics in particular that it's just sort of loosey-goosey. Right. We're going to think about some ethical questions, but, you know, Eric's going to arrive at his answer. And Jeff will arrive at his answer and other people will be guided by their feelings and, and, and intuitions. And there's really nothing more to be done at that point. And I think that's wrong. So I, I think that what's valuable about exposing people to philosophy is that it can provide them a kind of skill set. It can help them reason through these questions in a way that is productive. Let me add just one thing to that, actually, that occurs to me, is that I, th I think that's part of what makes collaborations between philosophers and computer scientists successful. Because I think for a lot of students who, who are, you know, are coming up through computer science and then get exposed to philosophy, you know, kind of indirectly through people like me, at first they have their guard up and they think like, Okay, this guy is just going like, to help us think about our feelings. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we're not really going to do anything rigorous here. But that's not true. There's a kind of rigor and a kind of analytic methodology to philosophy, at least as, at least as I think of it. And indeed, that's actually pretty attractive to people in sciences like computer science. There's a real opportunity to draw people in in these ways. Would you recommend any resources for having an entry point into learning more about the basics of ethics? Let me, let me recommend a couple of things that are, that are quite different in kind. One kind of thing is a sort of academic looking introduction to philosophy. You know, the kind of thing that resembles, you know, what would happen in a, in an intro to philosophy course or an intro, intro to ethical theory course. And here um, I can plug some text by my dissertation advisor, actually, a professor at, at UW-Madison. His name is Russ Schaefer-Landau. And he's done actually a few 
introductory level texts that I think are, are really good. They're accessible, but also rigorous. So a couple of titles, one that does a really nice job with the meta ethical material, uh, whatever happened to good and evil. And so it sort of invites the reader to, to think about why we don't talk about, you know, explicitly uh, ethical things, why we don't, why we're not in the habit of collectively issuing judgments of the, of the ethical goodness or badness of things and kind of um, takes, takes the reader through a little introduction to some issues in, in meta ethics. But then he has some other titles that would do well in the other areas as well. But I think another way to approach this is just by getting people to think about lived areas of difficulty, you know, areas in which they're oppressing ethical considerations. And I think for some of this, it might be best to approach those without really going to philosophy first, but going to the social science, going to the journalism that will expose the import of the ethical questions, even if it's not the sort of thing that's that's going to help, you know, with the philosophy side of things. Unsurprisingly, given my recent interest, I'm thinking of things like uh, weapons of math destruction. Now, I mean, now a few years old, um, I'm thinking about automating inequality. These are titles that are going to sort of lay bare the deep ethical issues in the use of automated digital technologies. And so I think what you kind of need after that then is a way to dig in to to the methodology of philosophy to try to help provide answers to those questions. So speaking of pressing issues, um, let's turn our <laughs> lens to what likely has not escaped any ethicist or any human being for that matter on this planet, which is the pandemic we're all living through right now. And we'd like to look at this pandemic through the lens of ethics. And in particular, we'd like to hear your thoughts on the ethical implications and considerations in Leveraging technology, how do you reason about that broadly? Part of what you're thinking, what, part of what you're asking, I, I think, Eric, is how we should be thinking about the potential role of cutting edge technology in, in addressing the threat of the pandemic, the harms of the pandemic. I think there's an important message here. So this isn't the, you know, this isn't the entirety of an answer, but I think it's an important part of the answer, which is that I think that the attention paid to the potential, you know, gains uh, offered by, by cutting edge or, or near future technology is a little bit of a distraction. I think that there's a real lesson to be learned uh, from the last uh, half a year now, I suppose which is that we need to be careful not to look for seemingly easy or quick or especially efficacious technological fixes when we sort of already know what to do without those things. You guys have been paying attention to this closely, and I know you've been speaking with people who are you know, sort of true experts in confronting the pandemic, so, so you know as well as I do that we've gone through, and here I'm thinking of the U.S., context in particular, of these sort of episodes of being fixated 
on various uh, technological solutions of certain kinds. So early in the pandemic, there was a lot of attention paid to the possibility of doing really sophisticated digital contact tracing. And then this question about, um, okay, well, suppose that we find out that, that there's immunity. How can we, how can we run with digital immunity passports? And meanwhile, uh, the real experts in public health were telling us, look, we basically know what to do. We need to scale up testing. We need to scale up contact tracing. We need to support people who have to quarantine. And we need to do that over and over and over again. And we can do that. We know how to do that without having to hope that some developer will, will provide us, you know, tomorrow with a really, really sophisticated contact tracing app. It, I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't want to be cavalier about this, of course, that the work is, is, it's not easy to do. And it would take tremendous organization and willpower and resources to do it. But for all of the attention that we pay on tech aided fix that doesn't exist yet, we're not paying that attention to something that we could be working on right now. You know, on a more optimistic note, but I guess let me put a button on the, on this thought by saying that it seems to me that the way to think about where we should be leveraging new technology is just by supplementing the methods, the processes that public health experts are telling us we should be doing anyway. Right. So let's do the foundational work. Let's make sure that we're building um, up our testing capacity. Let's make sure that we're building up our contact tracing capacity. Let's make sure that we're making uh, isolation a livable experience for people who have to isolate. Let's do that using our existing means. And then as we're doing that, if we find out that we'll get some gains in, um, you know, how quickly we can do contact tracing by partnering with a tech firm of, of some kind or other. And you see this, I mean, it is happening. Uh, then great, but we need to be really careful not to not to hope for the hope for the silver bullet while our existing tools sort of languish. How do you think about frameworks or methods around reasoning about what is ethical in, in these initiatives? Yeah, so here I think um, it's important to think about the way that you set up the question a few moments ago, and I think you were right to to do it in this way to really make progress there. I think we have to we have to get quite clear on what kinds of actions we have in mind. We might be asking, uh, how should I, Jeff, you know, how should, how should you, Eric, think about how to behave, uh, given the pandemic? Or we might ask that, that question about, uh, private firms or about governmental institutions at various levels. So the first thing I think is getting clear on exactly what question you're asking. Because the question, you know, how should we respond to the pandemic is, it's not confused exactly, but it's, it's pretty imprecise. And part of the reason that matters from the point of view of somebody who's, who's coming from ethics is that one's duties and responsibilities will vary depending on the position one occupies and really significantly will vary according to the power that the subject has to affect change. You know, and here I'm not saying anything you haven't heard before, I'm sure, 
one of the things that's been really disappointing about the U.S. context in the last half year is that the actor that probably possesses the most power, and here I'm sort of using actor in a, uh, in a broad way, so let's just think of, say, the, you know, the federal government writ large, there are really kind of a couple of things going on here. So, so one is just that, as a matter of fact, that entity has lots of power. And so it's capable of doing things that other entities can't do. And so it's going to inherit, you know, ethical or moral reasons that other entities don't have. And then on top of that, you might think that because of the kind of thing it is, it has responsibilities built in, right? On a kind of simple way of thinking about things, the point of the federal government is to put us in a position to solve massive coordination problems of the sort that we face in line with the pandemic, or at least that's part of the point. And so, you know, not, it's not like it has this power by accident. We built it to have this power so that we could uh, amplify our collective power to, to solve social problems. And part of what's been so disappointing, I think, is that we don't seem to, to be using the power very well. I'm tempted to answer in, in a way that kind of structurally mirrors the way that I answered the, the bit about technology. We already kind of know what, what's supposed to happen, right? The entities that, that wield this power should, you know, communicate and leverage that power. You've been doing a lot of work with initiatives at Harvard, embedded ethics. Tell us more about the genesis and the motivation behind it. What is embedded ethics? Yeah, so embedded ethics is a really exciting program, I think. It's um it's a teaching collaboration, a pedagogical collaboration between philosophy and, and computer science at Harvard, although we're, we're sort of now expanding the models, expanding to their campuses, even as we speak. And the spirit of the of the program, I'd say, is to infuse standing computer science curriculum with expert ethics education. Rather than trying to introduce new courses into the curriculum, or rather than trying to teach computer science faculty enough to sort of get on with some ethical content themselves, our aim is to get philosophers into computer science classrooms. And the goal is to integrate the technical content that already features in in those classes, integrate it closely with some ethical reasoning. So the spirit of the thing is is to embed and distribute. Get inside the classes, really work on on a collaborative interdisciplinary method, and then try to do that as much as we can. So the program started, it was founded by Barbara Gross, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, one of my colleagues in philosophy, Allison Simmons. One of the things that I think is really cool about the genesis of the program is that Barbara and Allison were really responding to demand from the undergraduates because there were a couple of classes in the CS curriculum, like the one that I co-taught with Barbara, that did explicitly address ethical issues in computer science, but the students wanted more. I think one student in particular 
you know, knew Barbara and was asking about this and, and then also happened to be taking some classes with Allison and just said, look, you guys should talk to each other and see if there's a way to work together. And so the solution that Barbara and Allison arrived at is to recruit advanced PhD students in philosophy to custom build and then deliver little ethics modules for computer science classes. So it started small. I think uh, in the first semester, they were, they were working with a small handful of classes, three or four. We now operate in about half of all DS classes in any given semester. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun. At least from afar, we haven't been a part of it directly, but at least from afar, it seems like a very potent initiative and beautiful initiative. Um, say a bit more about how you teach ethical reasoning to this constituency and demographic such that it's appealing, curious to hear the philosophy around that. We talked earlier about the importance of a certain kind of humility in approaching another discipline, crossing a disciplinary divide or engaging in interdisciplinary work. From our side of the of the collaboration from the philosopher's side. What I try to reinforce with our graduate students who are, who are doing the on-the-ground teaching is that we need to approach the computer science content with a bit of humility and we need to be willing to put in some work. A lot of what's challenging, um, but also I think quite exciting for the graduate students in, in doing this kind of work is that once you're paired with a class and you're charged with, with helping to develop a module, it really requires quite a bit of research because you have to be at least minimally competent in the subject area of the course so that you can stand in front of a room or you can appear in a, in a Zoom call, I suppose, um, in, in our current times and present yourself as someone who's, who's done the work, you know, who, who's approaching, approaching the content with respect and with, and with humility. So what this looks like is that we're usually trying to build our ethical instruction around case studies that directly interact with the technical theories or methodologies uh, that are studied in the class. And then identifying a relatively circumscribed, well-circumscribed uh, normative question that engages with that and providing enough tools from philosophy to help students think through that. Let me give you an example. Right now, we're working for the first time on developing new content for a class at Harvard called CS50. CS50 might be familiar to some folks listening now because it's, I suppose it's famous so far as academic courses go. It enrolls multiple hundreds of students. It's usually the largest class at Harvard. It enjoys wide digital distribution. And so we're working with them now to build some new content. One of the things they learn about in CS50 is uh, web programming of various kinds. And so that has wide application and gives us a lot of uh, potential fodder to work with. And they think a little bit about uh, the application of those techniques to, to digital, digital social platforms. So right now, our two philosophy postdocs are at work helping to integrate ethical content about the responsibilities of of social media platforms in regulating speech on their platforms. And so the idea is that 
there's something that the students are already thinking about, we're going to provide them some tools to be, to be thinking about some dimensions of thinking that should inform those actions, but that often don't, and hope that there's a kind of synergy that results. So, so it's kind of like a checklist style, check the box, you know, these things should they consider before I build X? Sometimes. I mean, I think that we want to be on guard against, we want to be on guard against the appearance that what we're going to do is show up, tell everybody exactly what to think about. And then, you know, sort of once, once you've done that, you're done. I mean, sometimes we might approximate that, but, it, but in my mind, it's accidental. We think about it in terms of trying to provide practice in developing a skill. We want to be, we want to provide a kind of, a kind of toolkit and then give students the opportunity to practice using those tools. So a lot of what's happening in the modules are active learning exercises. I don't think in any of our modules, anyone shows up and, you know, lectures for 70 minutes about what Facebook ought to do about regulating false political speech, say. Rather, we show up and say, look, here are some difficult ethical questions that you would confront if you, say, were charged with regulating false political speech on a, on a social media platform. Here's some tools for philosophy in thinking about the value of unrestricted speech. Here's some tools from political philosophy for thinking about the effects of unregulated, unregulated political speech on uh, well-functioning democracies. And then give students an opportunity to, to practice reasoning through decisions in which they can make use of those concepts. We're trying to we're trying to give students skills and and in part I think trying to habituate them into attending to these kinds of considerations in the first place. We want to try to normalize the idea that this is part of the regular business of being a computer scientist. This is part of the regular business of being a software engineer. This is part of the regular business of being a program supervisor. Yeah, even if we don't at the end of the day, say, here are the six things that you ought to be thinking about. How do we extend what you're doing at Harvard to each and every classroom? Yeah, so we are trying to do a little bit of that work ourselves by sharing all of the uh, materials we've developed. Um, they're available open access on our, on our website, embeddedethics.cs.harvard.edu for people in in education contexts, go look at that and steal from us as much as you can. One quick appeal to students, if you're listening to this and you're an undergraduate, go tell people that you want this. That's how it started at Harvard. You might not think it, but professors and administrators want to provide you with what you want. Here goes what motivates you. I'm just very curious and I, I want to do the right thing. How do you allocate your time? It's a difficult dance right now. Um, most of my time is spent wrangling a toddler and then um, furiously attempting to get work done while he's distracted.
which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear? I think that people should be way more open to pluralism about the foundations of ethics than most people are. There are lots of things that are ethically significant. They don't reduce to each other. What's the biggest trade-off in your professional existence? I suppose there's a big trade-off right now in trying to think about doing public-facing philosophical work and doing uh, traditional academic research. What are you currently reading? I'm reading uh, a novel by N.K. Jemison, who's fantastic, called The City We Became. Uh, I'm reading a book called How Smart Machines Think. And I'm reading a series of articles in uh, both computer science and philosophy on transparency and opacity in, in machine learning applications. Who are your favorite writers? Uh, who are my favorite writers? I love um, Neil Stevenson's fiction, uh, highbrow but exciting fiction. What projects are you currently working on? Yeah, so I'm working on a few things right now. So one is actually a proposal for a trade book. So a book targeted at a, at a wide audience to try to introduce some tools for ethical thinking, specifically as they apply to digital technologies. I'm doing that in collaboration with my co-author, John Basil, and also with him and another philosopher named David Gray Grant. We're thinking about what it would mean to value transparency or explanation in automated decision-making. How can listeners find out more about your work? You can visit jeffbarons.com. I'm also very newly on Twitter, so you can find me at jeff underscore barons. Uh, and through my website, you can find my contact information. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at Luminary FM. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization company or management they may be associated with and thank you for listening.